All right, let's look at our scripture as we start our new sermon series. Um, and this is Advent, and it's a great time to invite someone to church. So I would encourage you uh, to invite someone, and because uh, uh, they might say yes, and they might come. So um, here is our scripture, which is from Matthew 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. The word of the Lord. Well, Turkey Day is over. Uh, I see that many have slept in uh, because of the uh, uh, extended effects of the tryptophan. Somehow you managed to get out of the food coma and make it to uh, Advent. Uh, so congratulations to you. But now we have another holiday to look forward to, right? I'm not speaking of Christmas. No, I'm speaking of some of my favorite holidays that are less known and a little bit obscure and yet should merit great praise and anticipation as well. For instance, did you know that on January 3rd, it's Fruitcake Toss Day? That's right. That's right. You don't have to use that fruitcake as a doorstop. No, you can take the fruitcake and you can throw it uh, into the garbage can or throw for distance, throw for speed. It doesn't matter. January 3rd, Fruitcake Toss Day. How about this? January 11th, Learn Your Name in Morse Code Day. I've been working on mine. It's beep, 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 beep. something like that. That's right, because you can learn your name in Morse Code Day, a very, very obscure holiday, and yet at the same time, loads of fun for the whole family. January 21st, Squirrel Appreciation Day, right? We take for granted those pesky little critters. Why don't we give them their own day where we can appreciate them? Squirrel Appreciation Day. By the way, Mary Baldwin's mascot, the flying squirrel. What a great, great mascot. Good job, Mary Baldwin. Finally, January 22nd, Answer Your Cat's Questions Day. I had no idea my cat had questions. But now you know that on January 22nd, you can celebrate your cat for Answer Your Cat's Questions Day. These are all fun holidays, to be sure, which none of you will observe, I might add. But they're nothing compared to Christmas, are they? There's something special about Christmas. It is by far the most popular holiday in the world. And even for non-Christians, they use words to talk about Christmas like believe and joy and hope. It was the retailer, J.C. Penney of all people, that said Christmas is not just a time for festivity and merrymaking. It is more than that. It is a time for the contemplation of eternal things. The Christmas spirit is a spirit of giving and forgiving. Why is Christmas so special compared to all the other holidays? Why does it evoke these feelings and these emotions in everybody, regardless of whether you have faith or not? The reason it's special is because today, in the city of Bethlehem, a Savior is born. On that Christmas day, 
All those years ago, God broke into our time and space in the form of a baby. And the result of that is that earth can never be the same. And so what distinguishes Christmas from every other holiday is Jesus. I want to touch on three specific reasons why Jesus makes Christmas different than every other holiday. Number one, Jesus is for real. Number two, Jesus is for you. And finally, number three, Jesus is forever. So let's begin our first point, that Jesus is for real. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far... Oh, sorry about that. You know, that's the way that you start an epic story, isn't it? Everybody can remember the music and the lights and the long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But the gospel doesn't begin that way, does it? It begins with a genealogy. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it goes on and on. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, and on and on. What a strange way to start the most epic story of all. This book, Matthew, that I just read from is one of the Gospels. There are four of them, and the Gospels are called Good News. And when you think about it, it makes perfect sense why this story would begin with this genealogy instead of a long time ago or once upon a time. Because there's a great difference between a story and history, isn't there? A story is a fable that begins with once upon a time. And frankly, it really doesn't matter when it happened, when it was written, because it really didn't happen. As a result, it's enjoyable to listen to and watch and to be entranced by the story, but it really doesn't affect us, other than maybe inspiring us to live a better life or do better things. The best that a fable can do is give a good story. But good news is something entirely different. See, the gospel is not a story, it's history. Good news is something that has happened. Something that has happened that affects you and me. Not something that we have to do, but something that has already occurred. And we hear in this gospel that this good news is for all people, said the angel to the shepherds. For today, in the city of David, a savior is born. And so it makes perfect sense that we would get a genealogy to root Jesus Christ in history. Because Jesus is for real. This genealogy goes back, if you read it, thousands of years. It goes through 42 different generations. It's tedious when you think about it. But we need to understand that Christmas is more about just that day. Christmas is about coming. Jesus appearing on that day, December 25th, that we commemorate and celebrate, wasn't some haphazard occurrence that just happened to beat the odds. Rather, it's God putting in place a plan to save humanity from the beginning of humans' creation. Over generation and generation, God putting all the pieces in place so at the right time, in the right place, a Savior would be born. 
See, we love fairy tales, don't we? I mean, all the modern-day epic movies that we watch are really just fairy tales. Whether it's Star Wars or it's the Avengers, they all have the same sort of themes. There's an understanding that there's an overpowering evil in the world that none can overcome, that none can stand against. And there's a hope that someone would come, that someone would emerge, that could save us from this evil. But there's none that exists on the planet. All fail. And then the hero comes. And the hero stands in the gap. The hero lives a better life, fights a better fight, and sacrifices himself for the good of the world. And the ultimate result in the end is peace and harmony. Oh, we love fairy tales and we get, we enjoy them. You know, kids understand fairy tales. But we grow up, don't we? And we know it's foolish to hope in a fairy tale. As we see the world and as we become jaded by the world, we realize that the world is different. But there's something in us that wants to hope. But you see, the gospel is history, the story that all epic stories come from. In the gospel, we see an earth that is fallen by sin, that Satan reigns supreme, that all have fallen under the spell of sin and rebelled against God. But from the beginning of time, one has been chosen, one has been sent, one has been born, who lives a righteous life who points the way to God and, in fact, is the way to God and creates a way and a path by sacrificing himself on a cross, triumphing over evil and death by by being raised again on the third day. But you see, the gospel is better than any fable or any story that we could ever hope for because God sends not a brave warrior but a baby born to a poor family, But this baby is no ordinary child, is he? He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. All of God encapsulated in a small child. But at the same time, he's one of us too. He hungers like us and thirsts like us. But he never, ever, ever gives in to the evil one. Despite temptations for power, temptations to sin, much like we experienced and failed in. And this hero conquers death. And he will come again to destroy death. The story of Christmas is the story of hope. That God has broken into history itself. And that's why there's something special about Christmas. Unlike any other holiday. That people just for a second get the sense that fairy tales could come true. I remember the year 1977. I was six or seven years old when Star Wars came out. I remember standing in line with my father and it went around the movie theater to try to get in to watch this movie and staring with awe at this modern day fairy tale. As I said, kids get fairy tales. Excuse me, I have something in my eye. And I confess that I wanted to be Luke Skywalker I wanted to be the one who piloted the X-Wing. I wanted to be the one who wielded the force. I wanted to be the one that triumphed over evil. But as I got older, I realized that I was not Luke Skywalker, that I could not always stand against evil. No, there was a pressure 
that I experienced and succumbed to to accept the status quo that fairy tales aren't real, that evil is here to stay, and the best we can do is muddle through life, live a good one, and at the end, die. But then I heard the gospel when I was 18. I heard the true history. And I realized that Jesus was the hero that I had been looking for all my life. Jesus was the true hero. And furthermore, he wasn't fictional. He was alive. And I put my trust in him, not just because he's a great hero, but because he's real. Do you still believe in heroes? Do you still have hope that evil should not triumph, that death should not be the end, that we should not lose our loved ones, that this is not the way that it's supposed to be? Perhaps you've lost hope. You've seen too many heroes fall. You've felt the sting of death come oh so close. And you've resigned yourself to this is just the way the world is supposed to be. Christmas points us to the fact that Jesus is a real savior for a real world. And he's alive now that we can be in a relationship with him and that he will come back again and usher in a peace and the earth will be the way it's supposed to be. So dare to believe. Dare to hope. See the story, because the story is unfolding, and we are in it, because Jesus is for real. This brings me to my second point, that Jesus is for you. This genealogy serves a purpose, not only to ground Jesus in history, but to tell us what kind of savior Jesus is. Now, we're all familiar with the concept of a resume. A resume is where you list your accomplishments and communicate uh, who you are. It's your way of communicating who you are to the world. Well, that's a very American and modern idea. Back then, your genealogy was your resume. You were known not by your accomplishments, but rather by whose company you kept, what line, what family that you came from. And so a genealogy back then was your way of saying to the world, this is who I am. And much like any resume, you want to put your best foot forward. The purpose of a genealogical resume, like a modern-day resume, was to impress others with the high quality and respectability of one's roots. And that's why people would doctor their resume, their genealogy, just like people sometimes do that in the modern world. We know, for instance, that King Herod doctored his public resume and took people out because he only wanted sort of the blue bloods, the, the high-level people to be in his resume, his genealogy, and so he took people out. But as we look at Jesus' resume, and, and I just stripped out just a couple of points from his resume, we see that there's no attempt to clean up his background, his family ties, so to speak. Now, how do I know that? I know it for a couple of reasons. The first is the passage that I read to you contained all of the women in Jesus' genealogy. Now, Jesus lived in a, in a patriarchal society. You didn't put women in your genealogy. They were considered gender outsiders. But we see that Matthew puts not just one woman in Jesus' resume, not just two, 
but actually five different women mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. And of these five women, not only are they gender outsiders, but three of them are race outsiders. Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites, and Ruth was a Moabitess. If that's how you say it, I don't exactly know. She was from Moab. They were outsiders. They were considered unclean. They were not allowed to worship in the temple or the tabernacle. And yet they are in Jesus' family tree. Jesus' tree contained gender outsiders, race outsiders, and finally, it also showcases some of the most sordid history of Israel. We see in verse 3 that Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. The story behind this was Tamar, who actually was Judah's daughter-in-law, tricked her father-in-law Judah into sleeping with her, even though in the full story it's also clear that Judah had been unjust to her. And this was an act of incest, everywhere in the Bible against the law of God. And yet she did it, and Perez was born out of that, and so on and so on until we get to Jesus. Why was this included? It was included to show that Jesus came out of a very dysfunctional family. What about Rahab, who was a Canaanite and a prostitute? and yet is one of the relatives directly related to Jesus. We also see there's David in here, and we sort of give a sigh of relief because King David, now that's somebody you want in your resume, right? But it says David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now why doesn't say whose mother had been Bathsheba? The reason it doesn't say that is because if you remember Uriah had been one of the mighty men, one of the close confidants of David. And while Uriah was out fighting a battle, David saw Uriah's wife Bathsheba and wanted her and slept with her, and they had a child. And because they had a child, David arranged for Uriah to be killed so Bathsheba would be his. And that's why it says David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. It's showing the sordid background of Jesus' genealogy. And so what can we conclude of Jesus' background? It includes adulterers, adulteresses, incestuous relationships, prostitutes, moral failures, racial outsiders, gender outsiders, cultural outsiders. Why are they included in this opening part of the story of Jesus. They're included so that you and I can understand that you and I too can be part of Jesus' family. Hebrews puts it this way, that both the one, Jesus, who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. In other words, the gospel is telling us that Jesus is not ashamed to know you, to bring you into his family, irregardless of who you are and what you've done and where you come from. See, there's no one so bad that they cannot be redeemed by Jesus Christ. There's no one too far gone, either in the actions that they've done or where they come from, 
that they're out of the picture, out of the purview, out of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. But there's also no one who's too good, too high and mighty. King David needs grace as much as Rahab does, doesn't he? And yet that grace is there too for David. There's none too high. All are equals before Christ. All need a savior. Anyone who repents and believes can be included in Jesus' family. For he's a savior for all people. So you may say as you're sitting there thinking about Jesus Christ that he's not interested in people like me. If he knew my background, he knew where I came from, the people that I associated with, my family, he wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. It's clearly not true. Or what about if he knew what I have done, had done? If he knew the mistakes that I made, he knew the things that I'd said, Jesus wouldn't touch me with a 10-foot pole. The opposite is the case. Or finally, you may be saying, you know, I don't need Jesus. My genealogy is impeccable. I'm fine. I've got it taken care of. The gospel shows us that everybody, everybody needs a savior. And Jesus is the savior that can redeem anyone, regardless of how high or how low they are. Because Jesus is for real and Jesus is for you. Brings me to my final point, that Jesus is forever. In Matthew 1.17, it says that there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ. So there have been six sevens of generation. And that makes Jesus the beginning of the seventh seven. Now, why is that important? It's important because the number seven has great significance in Israel and in the law. See, people were supposed to labor for six days, and on the seventh day, they were supposed to re uh, rest. They were supposed to cease and stop. But additionally, there was a time period of seven years in which the Israelites were supposed to work the land. But on the seventh year, they were supposed to let the land lie fallow. It was a Sabbath year for the land. But on the seventh seven, meaning the 49th year, there was to be a jubilee. The law put it this way, that at that time, the seventh seven, all the slaves were to be freed and all the debts were to be forgiven. All the land and all the people were to have rest from their weariness and from their burdens. This seventh seven, this Sabbath of Sabbaths, was a foretaste of the final rest that we would all have when God renews the earth. It's called shalom, or the way that things ought to be. This gospel, by telling us these generations that Jesus is the seventh seven, is communicating to us that the one who has arrived is the promised jubilee rest. That God is ushering in a new era, a new time that will culminate with shalom, with peace. That there will be no more work. There will be rest or there will be the right kind of work. 
Jesus has ushered in a new rest that can be experienced now and will ultimately be experienced when he renews and resurrects the world, when he comes again, and nobody knows the day. So why is this so important for us to know? The gospel is telling us there's so many things that we look to in this world today to find shalom. We look to politics to create heaven on earth as if it could provide peace and harmony and goodwill between everyone. Nothing could be further from the truth. We look to relationships and sometimes they can provide a kind of peace. Sometimes they provide great tumult in the soul, but they can't provide an everlasting shalom. Neither can success or money or things that ultimately leave us empty if we look to them for ultimate peace. But the jubilee has come with Jesus Christ and will culminate when Jesus Christ comes again. But you see, if you repent and believe in Jesus Christ, if you trust in him now, you can start to experience that shalom. Because, as this genealogy shows me, Christ can accept me now through the merits of his cross. I don't have to prove anything to anyone. I can rest and just be in this world as I look forward to his return. Because this genealogy shows me that God is in control of all of human history. I don't have to worry about the future. Because God's got this in the world and God's got me and my future, and I can trust him. Because God has redeemed me because he wanted to. While I was still an enemy of God, he gives me a reason to live a holy life, to please him, because he's here to stay. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So God, Jesus is real. Jesus is for real. Jesus is for you. Jesus is forever. I hope that as we turn the corner and start to go through this Advent season, that you would take these things to mind in your own life, that Jesus would be for real, not only in the world, but to you. I hope that you'll live in the peace of the gospel as we wait for Christ's coming, because Jesus is forever. This is no fairy tale that I'm talking with you about. It's not a story. It's history. God has broken into the world through a baby, a savior, Jesus Christ, who lived and died and lives again. And so with me, oh, come and let us adore him. Let us adore Christ the Lord. For he is real, he is for you, and he is forever. Let's pray. We thank you, O oh God, that this story of the coming of Christ is no mere story, but is history. For you have broken into the world, into the real world. You lived and died and rose again. And through your Holy Spirit, you are here with us. O oh God, give us courage. Give us eyes to see the story and to believe, to have a relationship with you. And to know that you are coming back in body and will resurrect and judge the world. 
God, help us to see, each one of us, that none of us is too far from the grace of Jesus Christ. None of us is too high that we don't need the grace of Jesus Christ. Let us lean on you, for you are forever our Savior in our midst. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.